Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everybody, this is Aubrey Chavez from Faith Matters. First of all, we need to tell you that today's episode discusses the topic of sexual abuse and prevention of sexual abuse. So please use discretion in determining whether or not this is a suitable episode for you or for anyone listening in. Sexual abuse and sexual violence are shockingly prevalent. In the United States, about one in four girls and one in 13 boys experience child sexual abuse. In their lifetimes, over half of women and one in three men will experience sexual violence. And it's remarkably common for child sexual abuse to go undisclosed for decades. One study actually showed that the average age at the time of reporting child sex abuse was 52 years old. As Latter-day Saints, we're encouraged to do everything that we can to prevent abuse and to protect and help victims. President Nelson re-emphasized this in his conference talk this last month. We hope that this conversation can help us to do that more effectively. Our guests are Sage Williams and Rebecca Battalion. Sage is a Latter-day Saint and a nurse by training who has worked as a sexual assault nurse examiner, caring medically for pediatric and adult survivors of sexual abuse. Sage has a Master's of Science in International Health Policy from the London School of Economics and Political Science, where she focused on the importance of interdisciplinary collaboration with religious leaders, especially in preventing and responding to sexual violence. And Rebecca is a Latter-day Saint who has focused on raising a family for most of her adult life. Her service as a Ward Relief Society president over the last two years has been a catalyst for joyfully transforming her experience as a survivor of childhood sexual abuse into a deep love and passion for preventing and responding to abuse, as well as ministering to those whose lives have not been affected by it. Rebecca and Sage are currently authoring a book with a team of six other women on the power of Jesus Christ to provide healing from sexual abuse. This work promotes healing and advocacy for individuals and communities from a Latter-day Saint perspective. So with Sage and Rebecca, we cover issues like the prevalence of sexual abuse, who the perpetrators often are, and maybe most importantly, how to recognize abuse. We also talk about the body's autonomic response system and how we can teach the law of chastity so that we prevent feelings of shame, and how our communities can be one of the very best tools that we have in preventing abuse. Sage and Rebecca also put a huge amount of work into compiling extensive show notes for this episode to both cite sources and to give additional resources for help on this topic. All of us recognize that our comments in this conversation are totally raw. They're real, they're imperfect, they're incomplete, and we're still learning how to articulate our thoughts and feelings on this difficult topic in public. And together with Sage and Rebecca, we ask for some grace and understanding of our intent to inspire healing for everyone who has been impacted by sexual abuse. Thank you so much for listening. And with that, we'll jump right into the conversation. Okay, Sage and Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. It's a real honor to have you here. Thanks for having us. Thanks. What we're hoping to do here is to talk about the issue, the issue of sexual abuse and child sexual abuse and sort of go through, you know, the impact that this has on on survivors and victims and how we could be more involved in in protecting uh, people from this type of situation and how we can and how we can facilitate support and healing. And even in a sense, how we as a community can repent in the sense that how can we change and be and be better advocates for community and individual health on this issue. And you you two and the rest of the team that you work with were so generous to put together so many notes and, and crucial thoughts for us to for us to talk about. And one thing that really struck me right at the beginning was that you talked about not 
jumping straight into a solution. And that, and I think that's really, really important. You talked about sort of the importance of the way I saw it, at least living our, living out our baptismal covenants and mourning and grieving with, with survivors and victims. And I think it's really important to uh, acknowledge that even among Faith Matters listeners, there are many of you that have experienced sexual abuse. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing some thoughts in advance of this conversation, knowing that, uh, knowing that there are many people listening that have experienced this. Yeah, I think our, the core of our faith and what brings all your listeners together in Faith Matters is a belief in Jesus Christ and a desire to become more like him. And the first way that he asks us to do that through covenant relationship is through mourning and comforting. And that means taking some time to grieve. There's so much unity that that can come and just so much validation and healing when we really embody that first Christ-like attribute. And it places us in a position when we have grieved and mourned and really come to see and look at the reality of the horrors that people experience and the injustice that people experience, it places us in a position to then be able to testify of Jesus Christ as we see healing begin to happen. So I think the first response should always be to listen and to grieve and mourn that this is a reality and that this has happened in people's lives. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And we'll get more, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later, but I wonder if we could just take a second and talk about prevalence because the fact that this is a reality was so for, for so many people was actually really jarring to me. And, and I think I haven't been aware until we talked with you and with your team, just how many people are affected by sexual abuse. And, and, and it, and it's also just so jarring because not only are there is it everywhere, but also it's something that there, there's so much shame around that we're not talking about it. There, there's such a disparity. And, and so I think, I think we have to talk about that so that if, if this isn't something that has been a part of your life, I think it, it's useful to realize how common it is so that you can listen with open ears because it, it is a fact that it has affected someone close to you. So can you tell, can you talk about those statistics a little bit? Yes, absolutely. So Statistics vary region to region in the world, but we'll just, because we're based in the United States, we'll share the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, shares that one in four girls and one in 13 boys have experienced some kind of sexual abuse before the age of 18. And then they actually updated their statistics more recently, but then in adulthood, so bringing those statistics into then adults, over half of women experience some kind of physical sexual violence, and then nearly one in four men. So in some regions of the world, this may be more, and these statistics are focusing on physical sexual violence. So it's not accounting for online sexual abuse that's increased tremendously during the pandemic. But either way, even if this is an underestimate, they're really high numbers. And we all know someone who's, who's experienced sexual abuse, whether we realize it or not. Yeah. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about perpetrators also? I I think this is something that is so far out of the realm of conversation we're comfortable with that. I know just almost nothing. 
So talk about who, who are the perpetrators? I, I think, you know, growing up in the eighties, the perpetrator in my mind was someone I could, it was like a clip art version of a stranger, you know, and, and it was a villain. And, and I think it's, it's really destabilizing, but also empowering to realize that that's almost, that's almost never who we're talking about. Yes. I'll jump in and then Rebecca, feel free to add. So this is again, coming from the CDC in child sexual abuse, specifically 91% of perpetrators are someone that the child or their family knows and trusts. So it's a family member, a friend, an acquaintance, or someone in a position of power, like a coach, a teacher. And that's probably the biggest, most important thing to understand is it's someone not only the victim knows, but you probably know them too. And so it's really easy for us to think of perpetrators as these unimaginable people who we would Mm -hmm. never interact with. But we need to be way more educated and that that allows us to respond appropriately and in a healing way, both for the survivors and for the perpetrators, when we can acknowledge that this is a reality that people we know have inflicted abuse on other people. One thing that I would add is that I was sexually abused as a teenager by a private music teacher. My sexual abuse was not reported to the police. And I'm talking to uh, my therapist. She says that the vast majority of her adult patients never reported to the police. Yeah. Yeah. A, A policy think tank on child sexual abuse prevention in 2020 released the statistic that about 86% of abuse goes unreported. So most people are experiencing this in silence and aren't receiving help or acknowledgement. And, and that's probably why maybe if you're listening to this and you think, I don't know anyone who's been sexually abused, it's very possible that they just haven't shared that with you. Can we talk about how to identify abuse? And is that a barrier to disclosure? Do people, is it, is it that they, because this is someone that they're trust, that they trust, is it, is it, does that make it harder to recognize that this is actually abuse? I can say in my case that that was true. I didn't know for 15 years that I had been sexually abused. I found out when I was in my early 30s that it was still affecting my life every day that, that these events had happened. And there's so many, there's this wide variety of ways that it can happen, you know, grooming or conversation or physical interactions. And, you know, for me, I, I didn't even know exactly what the word molest was, but that was what happened to me. So I think it's really easy for victims to not understand that they're victims. And I I can't really speak for perpetrators, but maybe they don't understand the depth of what they've done or the consequences Mm -hmm. of their actions. And so it's hard for people to heal if they can't identify their role as a victim or a perpetrator of abuse. Yeah. Yeah. Rebecca, would you want to talk about those crucial facts that that you brought up? Yeah. The things that really helped me identify the fact that I was a victim of abuse were taught to me in counseling and I've had to have them reinforced many times and in many ways for me to really feel it and believe it that I was a victim. And as we're talking about this terms, I'm using survivor and victim interchangeably here, but usually I call myself a survivor because I have done so much work to, to try to mitigate the damage in my life of what's happened. But the first thing I would say is an unequal power dynamic that helped me identify abuse. In my case, it was a mid-30s man, and I was a teenager. There's a power 
dynamic there. He had power over me. He was bigger, stronger, in a position of authority as a teacher. So another crucial fact is understanding that victims blame themselves. That was a subconscious process that happened for me that, uh, that I did not realize. And sometimes victims blame themselves because they were convinced that they wanted the abuse, that they consented. That was the case for me. Convinced uh, by, by the perpetrator, are you saying, typically? Yes. Implying through words, actions, various means. Rebecca, maybe this is along the same lines, but education around autonomic responses, that sexual, sexual arousal is an autonomic response. I don't know if you want to talk to that. Or... Yes. Yes. For me, that was probably the, probably the number one crucial fact because I didn't understand that when this man touched me in a way intended to sexually arouse me, that I, I knew in my head that he was breaking the law of chastity, but I thought I was part of that because my body responded with pleasure. And I had no idea that that was something I, I couldn't choose to stop. That was a process I couldn't choose to stop. So, yeah, that was a big key. Yeah. I also wonder, maybe this is a good place to talk about the common responses, like the fight, flight or freeze response because that that feels kind of like in the in this in this same vein i mean i could see someone being afraid that because they froze that that meant that there this was not abuse and i thought that was a really important point that you brought up can you talk about that that very common response yeah i've heard of fight or flight but fight flight or freeze is new has kind of been new to me what that looked like in my case was you know my perpetrator asked me to go downstairs with him and i knew that his bedroom was down there i knew that things were going to happen down there that that would be sexual. And in my case, I felt the Holy Ghost tell me very strongly, don't go down there. And it was very confusing for me later. This is the biggest hang up for me to identify that I was a victim because I did go down with him. And as I recalled on that experience and the memories came back that were repressed, I realized I had a sense of dread about going downstairs and I was terrified but I did. And I didn't understand why I had disobeyed that prompting from the Holy Ghost. That's what made me feel I needed to go and confess sin. Wow. So can you, can you speak to that a little bit more? So you're saying you felt responsible. Like you felt like I ignored a prompting of the Holy Ghost. And so I, this, I got myself into this situation. So this, this is something that I chose like this. You're saying this was a confession. Like you went to confess a law of chastity issue. Oh my gosh. I, I I just feel like this is so important. There must be so many people in that exact situation who feel like they're responsible and not recognizing this serious power dynamic that because they're taking so much responsibility. I, I just think, I think that is so important to understand that this is still abuse. And even especially understanding this, this sexual autonomic response that even if they're was pleasure like that that doesn't change whether or not this is abuse and i can see how that would be very confusing and why there there's so much silence about this because it, that's it feels impossibly hard to talk about thank you for being so open because you i mean statistically speaking alone you know that there are listeners who have been in that exact situation who who haven't felt comfortable labeling this abuse and recognizing what actually happened to them 
And Rebecca, do you feel like the way that you were taught the law of chastity at church or wherever else you sort of absorbed those those lessons contributed to the way you felt about this experience? And what has that informed how you wish we would teach the law of chastity now? Yeah, I I do remember during this time that I was abused. I was attending church 100%, seminary 100%. I was there in the young women's room. I was there in seminary. And I would choose the back of the classroom because I felt that's where I belonged on probation. Because I felt like I, I was part of a sin that I was too scared to confess. And... I don't remember specifically things that people said that made me feel bad. Just this general feeling that sexual sin is close to murder in seriousness. And I doubted whether the atonement could really reach the place that I was. But I kept coming because I believed in the Savior, because I had a testimony of him. I knew who I could become through him. I just didn't see a way out of my situation. And I and I felt ashamed that I had these sexual feelings. I tried to destroy them to make them go away. And I didn't realize I was killing a piece of myself that would go into every life relationship that came thereafter. And I just felt like sex was bad. So I never saw the positive side of what sex could be. It was just shameful and secret. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk about the, the impact on victims? I mean, you, you've just touched on it, but I, I feel like that that feeling of unworthiness and, and also self-doubt talk about how this, it, it has a, it seems to really have a spiritual impact on, on the victim or the survivor after the abuse has stopped. Maybe Sage, you could, you can talk about this a little bit more generally too. Why, why, why is that the case? Like, why is it something that you carry with you for so long? Rebecca, I'll let you start and then I'll add on. Okay. I think that the most destructive time after my abuse was the 15 years or so that I didn't know that I had been a victim of sexual abuse because I walked away from that experience subconsciously feeling like I I can't trust my feelings. And just for example, in the experience of being molested, it's like switches get turned off. Like the switch of my awareness of my body got turned off. I only just recently found out that this was in a public place and I was right next to a sibling and the sibling saw, saw something that was different than what I remember. So I mean, being touched in a different place. I don't even remember that because I think my brain was trying to protect itself, just shut off the sensation to my body. I became disconnected from my emotions because I couldn't trust them. I, I felt sexual arousal and I knew that that was wrong. and. I was shocked. I didn't know how to respond. I feel like that switch got shut off. So when we talk about the Holy Ghost, it's a physical experience. It's somewhat of an emotional experience. The Lord's speaking to you in your mind and in your heart. And my mind was very confused. And I feel like that was the only sense that was really left to me because I became dissociated from my body, from my emotions. And it's taken me decades to start gaining that self-trust back to start turning on those switches of awareness of my own body, awareness of my own feelings and trust of my body and my feelings. And so a lot of uh, things that I've experienced have been, you know, this persistent feeling of unworthiness 
I remember once going in for a temple recommend interview and went to the, to a member of the stake presidency. And I just paused at the point where I was supposed to sign my recommend and I didn't know if I could do it. And I, I signed it and I drove 30 minutes home and I cried the entire way because I felt like an imposter. I knew that I could answer those questions favorably, but I did not feel like I was welcome, that I could welcome myself to the temple without guilt. But there were also feelings of, you know, not being worthy of, of receiving answers to my prayers. I could pray for my children and think, I know God will answer a prayer for them, but I have a hard time believing that he would answer a prayer for me. And it's been really hard to receive personal revelation. I feel like just in the last two years, I've really woken up to that process and come alive as I've reconnected with my body, reconnected to trusting my emotions. It's helped restore my connection to Heavenly Father and to believe that He wants to speak to me. And so I, I know that I'm not the only one that's feeling these things. Thank you. I wanted to jump in and just share maybe some implications for a leader listening to this um, because Rebecca has been so generous in sharing her experiences and there's so much that church leaders can learn from this in responding. The first thing is survivors often blame themselves, whether they don't just, whether they don't realize or understand that sexual arousal is an autonomic response, which means it happens automatically. It's an indication of a healthy body. So especially young children can be groomed to believe that they were complicit in the abuse or they wanted the abuse if they experience arousal. Or there are other reasons why people blame themselves, because if they can find a reason to blame themselves, then they can ensure they never do that thing again and protect themselves from being abused again. It's a way to create this illusion of a safe world. And so a lot of, I, I just, I think this is so important. A lot of survivors coming in aren't going to say the words, I'm a sexual abuse survivor and I need help. They're probably going to be stumbling over their words. They're going to be confused. And so this is a real challenge for leaders, but also a real opportunity to just take a moment to teach consent and to teach to teach correct principles. And so if someone comes in and is stumbling and confessing that they feel like they broke the law of chastity, given the prevalence of sexual abuse, there's just an opportunity to clarify and say, I'm so glad that you came and trust me with this information. I just want to be sure if this was something that you didn't want, or you didn't say yes to, or you felt pushed to go farther than you wanted to, then that's sexual abuse and something that's not your fault. And I will still help you heal from it. And if, and if this was a breaking the law of chastity, no problem either. We can help you either way, but I need to get, I need to understand, help me understand what this is. And that may open up an opportunity for a survivor to be able to have permission to think about it in a different way. The other thing in this situation where leaders just have a huge, a huge influence is the messenger matters just as much as the message. And as people of faith, who believe in the law of chastity and where sexuality is such a huge part of our spirituality and, and how we use our sexuality is a part of our covenant relationship with God. It matters to hear from a faith leader that we're, that you're innocent, that it's not your fault. Someone else could tell you that, but there's so much more weight when it's coming from our religious communities and it's being talked about 
by leaders in the church. So just leaders have a huge opportunity to talk about this, to teach consent in the context of agency, and also to share over and over and over again, it's not your fault and you can find healing from this and to just emphasize that to, to survivors. How would you describe consent to youth? Like, how would you teach that actually? Sure. So I would, I would preface it because we're in the context of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the two gifts that we were given by our heavenly parents, are bodies and our agency. And we, and consent is about valuing another person and valuing those gifts that they were given. And so consent is when someone agrees saying yes <laughs> to the interaction. It's not silence because remember the freeze response, which is an automatic and autonomic response as well. Someone can freeze and someone will say, well, they didn't fight back and they didn't scream and they didn't kick and they didn't say no. But that's that could have been their body's automatic response that they didn't choose to protecting themselves. And so I would say consent is when you have a verbal yes, and there's been no coercion or threatening or manipulation involved in that. So there are some also legal implications where a child cannot consent to have to participate in a sexual activity with an adult. It's it's just not possible. If I could add really quickly, I think maybe some teens listening to this, if there are teens who listen to this, I don't know, may kind of grumble. Oh, that really takes the romance out of it. If I have to talk to someone and say, can I, can I hold your hand and can I kiss you? But I think innately we're all, we all value our agency so much and we're such spiritual and sexual beings, beings. That when that is communicated, that you respect that about that person and you you care for that person enough to ask them. Um, I I think there's some power in that, and it maybe is more romantic than people realize. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to take the romance out of consent, but it, it is really important to be on the same page and to be able to talk about it openly. I think sometimes we get confused in the church too about age of accountability versus age where mm-hmm. a, a child or adult is capable of consent. I believe that that was something that was misconstrued in my case that, you know, my parents, I think they knew I was visiting with the Bishop often. And, you know, I, I went through a long repentance process and, and did not partake of the sacrament for a while. But I think that, you know, there are various laws in various States about what that age of consent is but it's important to understand the developmental phase that our children are in. And, and I know for me that like coming, coming close to, you know, when my oldest child came close to the age I was, when I was abused, I suddenly realized how very innocent that age was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, Rebecca, I, can I ask? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Sage, oh, I just wanted to add one more thing that I just thought of, but Consent also has to be received every single time. It's not a blanket statement Mm. consent. So abuse can happen. Sexual abuse can happen in marriage as well. For example, by being married, you're not agreeing to any sexual encounter encounter with your spouse. And if someone said yes on Monday, it doesn't mean they said yes for Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. So it's, it's an ongoing process where both people are using their agency every single time. If it's truly consensual. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I want to move into a portion of the conversation where we can talk about what we can, what we can do really specifically as parents, leaders, and just community, community members generally to protect children. 
But part of what occurs to me as we get into that part of the conversation is Rebecca, what you just what you just said, I, I realized sort of for the first time that you're saying that you went through quote unquote the repentance process as a as a teenager and disclosed what happened to your bishop. And it, it sounds like your bishop sort of accepted your your thinking as a teenager that this was a that this was a sin. Is that is that right? Yeah, that's correct. I actually and, first disclosed to my stake president who referred me to my bishop. Yeah. Did, so did they, were they familiar with the dynamics of the relationship and the age of the perpetrator and the unequal power dynamic and all of that? They were both in my ward. Yeah. And it was a man who was attending my ward. Oh. Uh, so, so they didn't know him. I think part of the difficulty with, with that process was that no one spoke to me about it. There, there was no statement of something feels off here or he, he did something that was wrong. I think that was, that was really difficult for me. And I know these are men that were trying their best and did not ask for these callings. It was just, just within a few years of when the hotline came out in my case. And I don't know whether that hotline was called or not, but, but I know that that would have helped offset the years of self-doubt to just know that yeah. somebody else thought something's a little off here. And that's definitely an opportunity that we have to say to people, what happened to you? That doesn't seem right to me. Yeah. yeah. So when you, when you both think about concrete steps that we could be taking to start protecting children more effectively, what, what comes immediately to mind? The first thing is for us to be talking about it for the adults mm-hmm. in the room to be talking. <laughs> it's a heavy responsibility to place on children to disclose and, it, and the more we talk about this and bring this into the light and the more we hold perpetrators accountable, accountable, it becomes a safer community for all children. Okay. And so that's the first thing is the more we talk about it openly, the more we learn, the more we listen to survivors, our communities automatically become safer. Yeah. And can than, I just, please, just as a quick yeah. follow up to that, Sage, are you saying, I, I want to be clear, you're not just saying at home, you're saying in, in Sunday school or in you know, priesthood and auxiliary classes, right? Like it's not just, it's not just a private conversation. Yes, absolutely. And maybe just jumping in with that too. It's more likely for a child to, and when I say child, anyone under the age of 18 to disclose to their peers than it is to an adult. And so there's a real opportunity for youth and children to be advocates for each other as well. Advocacy is a Christ-like attribute. Like that is one of the words that we use to describe the savior and so talking about the reality of that this is happening um, absolutely protects them and their peers because then they'll know what to do to share. And if it's happening in the home, which abuse does happen in the home, then of course it needs to be talked about at church and at school and everywhere else because the messaging that the child is getting at home is being groomed to believe uh-huh. that this is an appropriate relationship to have with a parent or with a sibling. So we have to correct and speak truth in every setting. This has to be approached every in every through every direction. <laughs> yeah. And what are some of the principles of those of those conversations that uh, that if, if somebody was having this conversation, a, a parent, a leader, a yeah, a teacher, etc., and they're having this conversation for the first time and feeling maybe some discomfort, like what are what are some guiding principles that they can apply to have to to have that first conversation? I'll jump in and then Rebecca, please, please fill in (laughs) where I miss things. But I would say a few things. First of all, 
if you're talking with a young child, well, at any age, but teaching consent and body safety, it's really important to to empower your child with the knowledge that they are in charge of their bodies. They're the boss. People have to ask permission (laughs) to give them a hug even. That might be controversial. We can Mm -hmm. talk about that later, but they need to feel that they have autonomy of their bodies and how their bodies are treated. And talking about safe touch and unsafe touch, where you can talk about the parts that your swimming suit covers is unsafe touch. If any, nobody should touch you there and you shouldn't touch anyone there either. And if someone does, please come talk to me about it. And obviously that conversation can mature if it's with a teenager. The other thing is a lot of children, I worked as a forensic nurse and I worked for the Children's Justice Center. So I did a lot of exams on on young kids who are survivors of sexual abuse. And if they don't have the correct terminology, if they don't know their body parts, they don't know penis and vagina and labia or vulva, if they don't know their correct anatomy and they only know nicknames, it's really hard for them to be able to disclose something that's happening. Kids really need to be empowered with medically accurate terminology about their bodies so that they have the language to disclose as well. And from a parent perspective, if they're just barely starting to talk about this, also just model repentance. Just be forthright. If this is the first time you're talking with your teenager about it and you didn't talk to them about it when they were ages zero through 16, say, you know what? I might stumble a little bit and I I'm, I didn't know to talk about this sooner or I was too scared to talk about it sooner or I was worried or whatever. Will you help me change? And can we start having this conversation? And maybe it will be uncomfortable for both of us at the beginning, but we're going to be better. And I'm doing this because I care about you and because of your safety. And, and I want to change and I want to repent. <laughs> I think there's a great opportunity to just model a little bit too. Rebecca, what would you add to that? I feel like there, there's a lot that we can do as church members and leaders in the church to protect children uh, beyond just parents talking to their kids. That is the number one place where we want that to happen, right? And we have to be really careful as leaders how we discuss this. But I know that as I've been serving as Relief Society president for the past year and a half or so, that I found so many places in which I can protect children and youth in that calling, you know, I discovered a part of the handbook in 38.6.2, where it talks about how ward councils can be discussing sexual abuse and they need to talk about it regularly. That's a setting where I have taken initiative to say, hey, Bishop, I think it's about time we talk about this. How can I help with this conversation? I, I've found that leaders want to help They need the information to help. And there's not a lot of training around this. But I think that we can really get caught up in fear. But there's a lot of power in the gospel. I think our gospel really has a lot of wonderful doctrine about how amazing sexuality is, what it can accomplish. Mm -hmm. And I think that as we have a positive message about sexuality, that our children will understand that this is actually the basis of the plan of salvation. No one would be here without sexuality. And that families are so important. Sexuality is so important because it creates families. It helps bind strong families together. And there are even ways that sexuality, when we're single, can help us to understand that God has planted in us the seeds of Godhood. It's part of our eternal progression. 
there are a lot of positive ways in which we can talk about this and we don't have to get caught up necessarily in the fear. And there's a lot of power in being prepared, right? I've been thinking a lot about the children and youth protection training and I'm having my, my presidency take it. We do ministering interviews with youth and just to have a follow-up conversation and talk about why do you think it's important for us to do these things? How can we help hold one another accountable to, to meeting these guidelines? Can we maybe put it in writing what, what we want to do? Can we maybe put it on the wall? That gives children and youth the opportunity to see what, what leaders should and shouldn't be doing. They shouldn't be the only ones holding mm-hmm. them accountable. Adults should. But that's a way for us to keep one another accountable and to be talking about it in our in our board councils, in our presidency meetings. And um, we can talk a little bit uh, about accountability and how that's actually a Christ-like attribute of holding ourselves and each other accountable. But I think that there are a lot of positive ways that we can talk about this uh, and empower our families and parents and kids. And can I ask Rebecca about that last point that you made that as, you know, as members of the church, we, there, there should be no barriers to reporting on all of our, most of our part, perhaps I should say. But there is a certain fear that I can imagine where you may, let me just ask you about a hypothetical scenario where you sense, you sense that something is, is up, but there is a fear that could arise where you could, you know, you could be wrong potentially about something and you don't want to you don't necessarily understand the process. There are the implications of what happens if I, if I say something and mm-hmm. I am wrong, am I going to ruin someone's life? Are, are sirens going to come blazing down the street? You know, like you, you want, and I think that I can imagine, and you guys may have statistics on this, but I can imagine that that would be a barrier to, to reporting. Just the, the fact that we don't have a hundred percent surety and the consequences of uh, reporting something wrongly or raising, raising a red flag wrongly could, uh, could really impact someone. So could you could you talk through that? Because I, I I'm just imagining that might that might really come up. Yeah. It's incredibly hard to make that phone call because it often means hurting people's feelings or possibly jeopardizing a relationship with someone. But I think it's important that we get outside this mindset of a report to the police ruining someone's life. It it doesn't necessarily mean that. It doesn't necessarily mean they're going to jail. All I think it means, honestly, is that the police are going to look into it, that we have a neutral party to kind of check out the facts. It actually helps relieve our leaders a lot, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of burden off the bishops. It takes a lot of burden off of the stake presidents that they can go about. They can go about the business of, you know, checking into things on the church end and know that the police will be handling the other end. Mm -hmm. And I I think it's beautiful, too, that, that those who have been abused actually really have eyes to see abuse. I think it's easier for, for them to believe and just spot that in our congregations, in our communities. It does not mean that we are going to treat perpetrators like villains. We really don't have to make it that way. The idea of ruining someone's life, in air quotes here, um, it, it might put a spotlight on them to look into their behavior, but it doesn't have to mean that we don't show them love and compassion it doesn't have to mean that that they don't belong in our church. And we really do believe in change. And when I when I call the police, it's it's my way of saying to someone, I actually believe that if you have done something, that you are a child of God and that you're worth getting the help that you need, that I want you to rehabilitate. I want you to change. I want you to have the opportunity to come before God and be prepared for that experience someday. 
So in my mind, this isn't ruining someone's life. This is actually holding them to a gospel standard that I try to hold myself to. And I hope others hold me to that standard too. Yeah. And I, I love the way you, you framed that. I can imagine a fear, a, a related fear that maybe, maybe if you get, even get over the idea that you might be ruining someone's life, that you might be ruining a relationship because the, the person that you suspect uh, that may not see it as charitably as you as you intend it, even if you have the best of intentions, like you just described, Rebecca. So I'm trying to just think through what, what could be all of the barriers. And I'm wondering, is there's like some, some sort of like, are, can you be anonymous when you report or are the police when they, when they come knocking and they're the neutral third party, which is great. Are they going to say, Hey, we just got a phone call from so-and-so and they wanted us to look into your behavior. What, what are, can you talk through any of those logistics that might just get people over the hump in, mm -hmm. in terms of reporting? Well, a couple of things come to mind here. First of all, this making a phone call is sustaining your leaders in protecting their flock, making a phone call to the police. You can even just say one little thing that felt off. And I know that I've learned from Sage that if a detective hears about the same person, three little things from three different sources that felt off, then they're, they're going to be more inclined to look into mm -hmm. that. So you don't have to have the entire case ready and presented to them, right? Wow. That's Sometimes so good to know. Yeah. Thank you. Go ahead, Sage. Also, if I could add, the report is the first step where the community steps in and, and helps and supports healing. There, an, Another situation I thought of when Tim was saying what are barriers is what if the perpetrator is the financial provider for the family? Then that can feel really devastating for the and, and would be a huge barrier for reporting because you're worried about your family. But we we structurally as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are so well equipped to handle this and to support completely. We believe in accountability to the law and to God's laws. So the the whole ward community has a huge role to play, not just in the reporting, but every point thereafter, supporting the survivor and supporting the families. The whole family is impacted by sexual abuse. That's another thing we don't often talk about. So we just say, oh, it's just the survivor and, and the perpetrator who are a part of this. No, parents are impacted, children, siblings. And so there's a real opportunity of the first step is reporting, which takes tremendous courage and is completely in line with what we believe about accountability and, and helping in the eternal perspective, helping the perpetrator see the truth of the reality so they can be in a place where they can be brought to a place where they where they want to repent, where they see what they're accountable for. And then we have a huge role thereafter in supporting every member of the family, including the survivor and the perpetrator and their families in, in the healing journey, which could be really difficult, including if it includes legal consequences. Yeah. I love that. I I kept thinking about that. Like we we have this incredible infrastructure just sitting there like waiting to be utilized. And it, it's so helpful to know how healing it can just be to have the conversations. Cause that's so easy. That's such low hanging fruit that every week we're gathering with all of our community and, and we can have these conversations and just the conversation itself, it sounds has the power to do so much good. But one thing before, I know we kind of need to start wrapping up, but one thing that felt really important to me to talk about was that oftentimes the perpetrators are other children. And this is just cracked my heart open. Like I've, that's never crossed my mind. And I know that there are 
have got to be some listeners who are in that situation, who are a parent of a, a child who's been a perpetrator. So talk to them for a minute before we end. So let me start and Rebecca, please fill in. Yes. In about the Department of Justice released a policy brief where they share that about 35% of child sexual abuse is perpetrated by another child, someone else under the age of 18. So it's common. And there are a lot of reasons why I can't possibly name all of them, but some examples could be many perpetrators of sexual abuse are modeling the behavior that they've either seen or experienced themselves. So they're also survivors. Mm -hmm. Many children who are exposed to pornography are then modeling the things that they've seen. Sometimes it's about power or revenge, but they've learned it from somewhere and they need both accountability and healing. So if I was in that parent's parent shoes, the first thing I would say is don't ignore it. It's so easy to say, to say one of two things. One, it's not a big deal because they didn't understand what they were doing. It may be true that they didn't understand what they were doing, but that does not help them. It doesn't set them on a trajectory for good, positive relationships in the future. And it also puts the rest of the community in danger and, or by ignoring it because you feel such guilt or shame, maybe around that this is something that's happened in your family you're communicating to them this is so shameful and so terrible mm. we can't even talk about it wow. and that they carry with them for years and years too and so i would say there are a couple questions that you need to ask yourself and the first is around what does this child need to understand and learn about what they did? What do they need to understand about agency that they're not understanding? What do they need to understand about who we are in relation to each other? Um, and the implications for that, because we're brothers and sisters, how we interact with each other and the sanctity of our bodies. We also, that, that same parent also needs to be asking, how can I help this child develop empathy and concern and see the seriousness of what they've done through seeing what the victim needs to feel safe and to feel accounted for. If mm -hmm. the victim is in their same ward, for example, the child may need to make some accommodations. Maybe, maybe they need to go to a different ward for a time, or maybe they need to have someone called an adult called to be with them at all times in activities. So they're not running around the building for the safety of others. And that's kind of the third thing too, is what accommodations need to be given to protect other children. And in all of these, and Rebecca, please add in, because I think I'm, I'm sure I'm missing some things, but in all of these interactions, this is an opportunity for this child to experience the good, true joy of repentance and change through Jesus Christ for really their hearts to change and for them to learn what it was that, that was that was wrong and to make a course correction. And that should be such an opportunity. I worked with perpetrators of sexual abuse. I did an internship for a few months in secure care facility. And for them, accountability was really hard, of course, but it was also life-changing for them because it mm -hmm. changed the trajectory of where they're going. They understood now the severity and that's hard and that's painful, but in all of your interactions, how you choose to interact with your child is an indication of how you feel about Jesus Christ and his atonement. And do and and we really believe people can change and that that can be healed and the shame around it can be healed. 
and it can be healed for the survivor and victim as well. And, and there has to be a real change. It's not about covering up or about mm-hmm. pretense or being worried about what people think. There will be some consequences there for sure. But the the good change is, is in being really honest with it and talking about it and accounting for the uniqueness of the child's understanding and filling in and teaching them where they need to learn more. Wow. Thank you so much, Sage. I think a lot about bringing sexual abuse into the light. I think it's a beautiful concept to bring light. We talk a little bit about shame here, that shame is damaging both for the victim and for the perpetrator, that it's, it's a feeling that is natural and human, but we do need to learn to move through it to something more constructive because shame says, I am bad. Mm-hmm. Whereas guilt says what I did was not in line with what I believe. And that's probably a more constructive place to come at this from. Uh, I think it's really important to remember that pornography and sexualized imagery and conversation are so prevalent that a lot of kids are coming across this and they're getting their sex education from pornography. And so this actually develops, uh, I listened to a great podcast about this. I can't get credit for this, but this pornography develops attitudes about how we should treat one another. Our kids really need a message that will combat that. They really need the light and the truth to say that actually people don't want to be treated that way with violence Mm -hmm. and with humiliation, but we can respect one another. And um, I think that we have a real opportunity as parents to just say, Hey, this is something that you're going to come across. And please know that you don't have to feel bad if you come across, you know, some pornography and it makes you feel good inside. Again, that autonomic sexual response, right? You're going to feel you're going to feel bad and you're going to feel good at the same time. It's really confusing. Mm-hmm. So when you see that come and talk to me, I'll I'll tell you what the truth is because there are a lot of people out there who are making money by showing what isn't the truth. Yeah. So we have an opportunity to help change that narrative about what sex is, what it really is about, and it's not about shame. It's it's about gratitude and love and building relationships yeah could we could we also talk just very briefly about forgiveness in the context of this issue it's very easy to imagine that forgiveness could be weaponized potentially by by perpetrators but it's also but at the same time the the subject of forgiveness generally is is doctrinal and christ taught us to forgive so how do we how, how do we balance how do we balance those things when it comes to when it comes to sexual abuse So I think it's really helpful to talk about what forgiveness is not. (laughs) That's sometimes easier to understand to then understand what forgiveness is. Actually, if I can just quote Elder Neil Anderson, there's, he has a quote about forgiveness that's really instructive. And before I start this quote, I want to just reiterate that sexual abuse is a violation of agency. And so the fundamental principle that you should be thinking about if if you want to tell someone to forgive them is how can I restore this survivor's agency? So this is something they're doing of their own free will and of their desire because of the healing they've experienced, not because of my discomfort with hearing about pain and because I want this to be over and I want us to just forget about this. So let me read this. This is quoting Elder Anderson. Forgiveness is not excusing accountability or failing to protect ourselves, our families, and other innocent victims. 
Forgiveness is not continuing in a relationship with someone who is not trustworthy. Forgiveness is not dismissing the hurt or disgust we feel because of the actions of others. Forgiveness is not forgetting, but remembering in peace. Forgiveness is putting more faith in Jesus Christ and his atonement in his time and in his way. His love and sacrifice for us will take away our pain and heal our souls. So forgiveness is compatible with sharing one's story throughout your life. And it is compatible with accountability too. Forgiveness does not absolve the perpetrator of their act, of their actions. There's some really good scriptural examples. Maybe one that listeners are really familiar with because we're studying the Old Testament is Joseph of Egypt. Mm-hmm. He could forgive his brothers and still put them through rigorous tests over time. <laughs> he intentionally hid his identity from them. And so there's there should never be pressure of the survive for the survivor to re-enter a relationship with the perpetrator for the sake of pretense or because we just want to be a happy family again. I'm using air quotes yeah. or or anything like that. Forgiveness from we I've learned, I mean I'm just sharing this from learning from many survivors who have shared and done the hard work of forgiveness, but it's about healing your heart and the way you feel towards that person. And if I could just briefly say, because a, a, a huge thing that's used to weaponize is, well, just don't talk about it anymore. Stop sharing your story. Mm-hmm. And I would say when, when Jesus Christ heals the shame of sexual abuse for survivors too, that's another barrier to disclosure is what are people going to think about me and what are they going to say about me? But also for perpetrators, we then can, they then have the freedom to use their stories to testify of Jesus Christ. And what power in being able to testify of healing? I think the two scriptural examples that come to mind are Paul and Al the Younger, the vilest of sinners, the very worst. (laughs) And they shared their story freely throughout their life because they no longer had the shame and experienced the shame of their story. And because they had experienced healing, they could then share their stories and testify of the Savior. And so anytime we're trying to silence a survivor, Anytime we're trying to get over it and just not want to listen to it anymore. If that's the rationale for forgiveness, we need to, we need to think critically about it and check ourselves. Thank you. You know, there, in my life, there are a lot of people that need to be forgiven. And and I honestly feel like it, it might actually be easier to forgive my perpetrator than some others who, who saw what happened or may have known or could have protected me. It's hard. And I feel like forgiveness kind of happens on a spectrum. In my situation, I think a lot about how I need to have an understanding of the full impact of this event on my life to be able to forgive it, if that makes sense. And so as I go throughout my life, I'm trying to move forward on that spectrum of forgiveness. And I can, I can work on the feelings of my heart toward another person, even if that doesn't look like a relationship with them. So. The more truth that I gain about my experience, the more I move toward more complete forgiveness. But for me, I feel like that's a process that will not be finished in this life. And for most sexual abuse survivors, that is not going to be step number one. That really should not be the first thing we're recommending because they need a chance to look at their lives and see how they're being impacted by it. 
And as I say this, I, I really want to emphasize that although the impacts in my life of sexual abuse will be for my entire lifetime, there are some things that I cannot completely overcome in this life that I know that complete healing will come after this life. And that I know that as I work toward that forgiveness, as I work toward healing, that the Savior Jesus Christ will give me the ability to reach that point someday. And I have a lot of hope in that. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for your story and Sage, for all of your wisdom, both of you. We really appreciate that this is the beginning, hopefully, of lots of conversations that will that will help protect our, our community and help us to be healthier together. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much for starting the conversation. All right. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope that you found this conversation helpful on this terribly difficult topic. We can't thank Sage and Rebecca enough for their courage and coming on and sharing their experiences and expertise and for the huge help that they've been as we put this episode together. We want to reference again that we have extensive show notes that provide many more resources on this topic. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, remember, you can check out more at faithmatters.org.